Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 5th of February, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to have with us from the from the Netherlands, Alex Thompson. And uh, we've also got Mark Anderson from the United States. So as our audience will know already, a few gremlins, but we're pleased to say we've got all the streams back online. And uh, so let's get into the news. Alex, welcome. You made it. I did, Brian, despite the gremlins. Well, let's launch into a series of uh, headlines from the Daily Telegraph, which is supposed to be on defence matters, Britain's paper of record. So they actually take notice of things others don't. And here I'm going to give credit to Lewis Page, I think the regular or a regular defence correspondent with the Daily Telegraph, because he's telling the truth. Wasteful Britain needs to buy a new arsenal for war with Russia. So it's not whether war with Russia is coming, it's can we fight it? He suggests doubling the defence budget and says that all the stuff that David Cameron famously called green CRAP could actually be cut a bit. Other departments could lose 4% and that would double the Ministry of Defence budget because the Ministry of Defence, as he points out, is being made to employ lots of people in Britain to keep the unemployment figures down and to uh, loan money, actually, to nominally British but actually international uh, defence conglomerates in order to produce weapon systems that Britain never benefits from if they ever become battle ready. So he's seen it. Uh, his record is quite solid. So look at the uh, back catalogue, which you'll find in the show notes as well. Britain's defence boom built on sand. We need to talk about aircraft carriers. Um, Britain's jetless aircraft carriers are a national embarrassment. Uh, he's seen quite a lot. Uh, but the Daily Telegraph continues to uh, up the ante as well. So the brand new chairman of the Defence Select Committee of the House of Commons, Sir Jeremy Quinn, says here, well, he's been given the headline by the editors, we need to rise to the challenge of a pre-war world and quickly. So again, it's just taken as a given that war with Russia is coming. And his main point there is that nobody can retain uh, or recruit enough uh, defence stuff uh, in Britain, uh, which is a Western worldwide problem. Uh, but he says that for every um, eight that uh, that go from the um, armed forces uh, or MOD more generally, only five uh, are come. So this one will particularly pain your heart as a Navy veteran. Uh, the Daily Telegraph has also, in the form of the uh, defence uh, editor, Daniel, uh, Daniel Sheridan, uh, has found out that the Type 45 destroyers were never budgeted to carry uh, sea-to-land missiles, the cruise missiles that provide the shock and awe when the Americans uh, come up close to an, a foreign country's uh, coastline. So instead, as you can see here, there's some uh, treadmills and cross trainers uh, because that compartment of the Type 45 uh, class has become uh, a gym. Uh, we go on from there to see that uh, Eastern Europe now has its turn this week, the Balkans specifically, for the war scare that we saw hit Northern Europe last week. Uh, MENA FN reports that uh, residents of Romania have been warned by the chief of general staff, the gloriously named General Vlad, that war with Russia could happen at any time. Uh, neighbouring Croatia, well, it doesn't neighbour uh, Romania literally, but a neighbouring country to Romania is Bulgaria, which is where this new site is from, Novinite. They report that fellow Balkan country Croatia is, reconsider is reconsidering whether it needs to reintroduce the draft. Uh, so this is getting quite widespread around the European Union. Uh, but what else has been going on with uh, defence generally? Uh, well, uh, let's have a look at this photograph here, which was taken by a Chinese source uh, in the harbour of uh, Yokosuka, Japan. Uh, it, this old rust bucket is a US supply ship, one of those that come and resupply US Navy vessels deployed to the Western Pacific. And even a landlubber like me can tell that that vessel has seen better days. Uh, also in the show notes, though I don't have a slide for it, is that the US Navy is now allowing high school dropouts to be recruited. And I don't mean anything snooty by that, but the US Navy had its reasons for wanting people with a school leaving certificate, basic, uh, basic numeracy, for example. That has gone by the board for the same reasons that Sir Jeremy Quinn was describing in the case of Britain, cannot get the numbers. Uh, we also see, it'll be in the show notes, that the US is reviving Pacific bases that haven't seen duty since they were fighting Imperial Japan 80 years ago. 
There will also be a show note link to a piece by the very uh, nationalist American conservative, uh, conservative commentator Vox Day uh, on immiliteracy, a new word that he's coined for Uncle Sam no longer being the top dog. And he says that he sees signs that the US is already losing naval confrontations with Iran, let alone Russia and China uh, in the Red Sea and more particularly the, the Gulf uh, at the moment. Um, but also the Royal Navy has got some problems. We'll put in the show notes that the... Um, uh, flagship of the new aircraft carrier class, the Queen Elizabeth II herself, cannot put to sea because there's been a problem with one of the connections to the starboard shaft, which sounds very much, Brian, perhaps you'll like to comment in a moment, very much like what happened to the sister ship, the Prince of Wales, when she was in dock for a while. So she cannot go off on the latest deployment and she's being replaced by the Prince of Wales for that. Also, uh, eight years since Britain's last test fire of a nuclear missile, which was a flop because the data connection failed. HMS Vanguard, who's been in uh, dock for years on a completely over-budget, uh, over-timetable repair, is going to try again to fire a test nuclear missile in the Atlantic. So we'll see what comes of that. Any comments? Uh, well, my initial comment on the um, uh, prop shaft is that it was acknowledged as a design fault in the first carrier, so it's not surprising that there will be similar uh, problems in the Queen Elizabeth. Um, but, of course, the other problem is that the uh, um, maintenance is now done largely by British Aerospace, I'm being told, but we have seen a decline in the uh, the number of people trained in uh, uh Main, in maintenance engineering within the armed forces. And of course, that's now come home to roost. So the skill level, with no disrespect from those serving and going through that the particular training, the skill level reduces, um, the maintenance is outsourced, and when the problems arise, nobody can fix it. So uh, sad times. And indeed, it's not just BAE, formerly British Aerospace, uh, but now international and not just an aerospace company either. Uh, Babcock, which have more of a contract in the uh, nuclear boats, uh, have similarly been taken to task because one of the reasons we haven't been able to fire uh, a nuclear missile for some years is because HMS Vanguard had to go in for that long refit after it was discovered that right there in the nuclear parts of the boat, uh, there were bolts that had been glued together, which caused the then Defence Secretary Bren Wallace to get on the blower and give Babcock a flea in their ear. Uh, but to close off my war coverage, uh, Ukraine. Associated Press has got quite a giveaway here of some uh, fairly tectonic shifts in NATO uh, with regards to the level of support for the uh, current policy in the Ukraine war. So although the headline is about nasty Russia refusing to turn over the bodies of plane crash victims, this turns out to be over 60 prisoners of war that were being transported into Russia from the battlefield. Uh, we look into the body of the piece and we see that a French military official with uh, access to intelligence off the record told the Associated Press, fully knowing that that is the pinnacle news agency for the Western world, so it would trickle down, that France has concluded that the Ukrainians used, uh, this would be a US-supplied piece of kit, a Patriot battery to shoot down that plane, an Illusion 76 transporter, firing from only 30 miles away, and the French have got enough radar um, telemetrics to see that what's gone on telemetry to see that what's gone on here uh, is that the uh, the battery was scuttled close to the border uh, went uh, live uh, for as long for as, as short as possible to shoot down the Aleutian and then scuttled back so that looks like the French saying uh, to the Americans don't even try to blame this on the Russians we don't want any of your further escalation uh, likewise, Poland, the most uh, jingoistic of Ukraine's neighboring allies, is actually admitting now. Uh, in the form of the president Andrzej Duda in an interview on Friday uh, with a Ukraine uh, with a Polish radio station, that while he hopes Ukraine will retake uh, the far east of the country Donetsk and Lugansk in full, he doubts that that's code for he understands it will be undoable that uh, Ukraine will ever retake Crimea and says face it it was Ukra it was Russian territory for most of its history. Uh, so we'll see where that one goes as well. I am hearing other sources saying that there is preparations being made by the Polish and the British uh, to declare Lviv some kind of de facto capital of a rump state, which is something that analysts predicted as early on in this two-year war. It may be time for the European allies now, even the Poles, to bite that bullet. 
Alex, uh, thank you very much for that excellent summary. And of course, uh, fighting in Ukraine is uh, at the moment horrific as the uh, Russians are making, clearly making progress. And the, excuse me, the Ukrainians are trying to defend key areas such as Avdivka. Now, I just wanted to bring on screen uh, two emotive slides, but uh, I think they need to be shown. So uh, we've got a little girl here. The one on the left uh, is Gaza, as far as I know. Um, but clearly that little girl is extremely distressed. And this is the result of uh, the shelling and bombardment that uh, the Palestinians in Gaza are undergoing. And on the right, of course, we have Boris Johnson, who likes to play the buffoon. But we need to remember that certainly in Ukraine, he was the man who is widely now reported to have destroyed the peace talks. And if I just bring in a second little clip here, uh, another little girl who's clearly suffering from the cold. I'm taking this as Gaza. If anybody corrects me, I'll accept it. But the point needs to be made in any case of the suffering in these war zones and particularly for children, uh, while British politicians seem to be working as hard and fast as possible to create the next conflict. And so probably appropriate for us to bring Cameron on, on screen. Uh, but Lord Cameron, as IDV um, names him here. Um, and my question is, is Lord, Cam is, is Lord Cameron the person who actually makes the decision to unleash the killing in Yemen? We've got a new, new war zone um, recently coming into the picture. But is it David Cameron who's making the decision or is it other people? And we'll have a little bit of uh, discussion on that in a moment. But uh, a reminder of the horrific casualties in Ukraine. We showed this um, a week, about a week ago. The, the key point here was Russian dead at about 120,000. And then uh, we pointed out that the Ukrainian obituaries at the time, 408,000. Uh, well, this has now increased to 410,000. We're talking dead here. And these are figures which uh, are claimed to come from the obituaries reported in Ukrainian press. So horrific casualties in deaths and uh, the injuries way beyond that. But these are the wars the wars that the Western politicians seem so keen to keep going. And uh, just to give a little bit of detail on uh, on uh, Gaza, I'm going to put on the original Israeli figure of uh, 1,300 dead. There are some questions over that. There's still purported to be 136 Israeli uh, hostages still in the Gaza area. Uh, but if we put on the casualties now amongst the Palestinians, 25,700 dead, 63,740 injured or thereabouts. And uh, if we look at uh, uh, the arrow there, I'm indicating the fact that on this UN statistical infographic, uh, of course, the Israeli controlled fence around uh, the Gaza Strip is is uh, indicated there, and this is where the civilians have no possibility of escaping uh, the bombardment which they're currently under. And that bombardment can only happen with the full support of the US and the UK and the West in general. So we are fully complicit in any of the horrors of what's happening in Gaza. And if we just continue with a little bit of information from that. So this is a little bit more of the UN statistics. Uh, but here they're talking about 2.2 uh, million people at imminent risk of famine because the supplies are not getting into the Gaza areas. Uh, 70,000 plus destroyed housing units, 290,000 plus damaged housing units. So this is pretty serious stuff. But uh, where I wanted to get with this is who is actually in control of putting British military overseas and uh, can the public do anything about it? Now, I've chosen the Institute for Government here that uh, in December, Back in December 2015, they were talking about Commons votes on Syria and, uh, and uh, military power. And the question they asked was, can the government go ahead with military action in Syria without parliamentary approval? 
And according to the Institute for Government, the answer was technically yes. As we've clarified previously, the power to commit troops in armed conflict is one of the remaining royal prerogatives. Um, and that is the powers that are derived from the crown rather than confirmed on them by sorry, conferred on them by Parliament. This means that uh, the PM has a constitutional right to decide when to authorise military action. I find that statement utterly uh, frightening, but if we just have a look at a second question, what kind of military action now requires a parliamentary debate? It says, as with any convention, this all depends on how the government wants to interpret past precedent. Alex, if I may, I'll just ask you about this. I find it extremely worrying that we now have politicians who are clearly out of control in how they conduct their business and try and run the UK. But those same politicians are able to start wars overseas and to foment wars by pumping in special forces and or weapons systems. Is there any way that we've got to stop what these politicians are doing, do you think? There is, and you can find chapter and verse on what to tell your MP to do in Philip Ridley's piece, which is still in Editor's Choice on our front page, entitled War Powers, uh, because what's happened here is that a librarian called Claire Mills at the House of Commons Library uh, has erroneously briefed members of parliament that because she took a snapshot of the current statutory scene, she's concluded that, oh, there's this hangover called royal prerogative, something like Henry VIII powers, and the crown is the prime minister as far as she's concerned, and the prime minister can just do so because he's got the king behind him. Tosh, uh, there's a constitutional settlement before the United Kingdom existed, seven years beforehand, the Act of Settlement uh, 1700, and Philip Ridley goes into a great deal of detail there on how Parliament has got uh, war powers that have been uh, put in treaties and constitutional statutes down the centuries. The only royal prerogative to go to war that there is, is more than a prerogative, it's a duty on the Crown to defend the realm, British territory and British overseas territories. Short of that, Parliament must be uh, requ required uh, to vote on that, as with the US Congress, which in an often overlooked uh, detail of the US Constitution, the Congress uh, has the powers to give the president, the equivalent of the king in the US system, the title of commander in chief for the duration of any war uh, where the US uh, home territory is not uh, involved. So it's the same situation there, kings and presidents on both sides of the Atlantic pretending they have Henry VIII powers when they do not, particularly not to start wars of choice and aggression where our territory and people are not involved. Alex, thank you very much for that. And we can also add that, of course, if people want to stop these wars, they have to become active in very large numbers. And the pressure has to be brought to, to bear on the politicians with a simple message that the war is not required. But I think at the moment, we're looking certainly in the UK at politicians across all the major parties who are simply out of control. And one of the big problems is we don't know who really has the power and influence on politicians because there are many and various organisations that seem to be able to bring pressure to bear. But I just wanted to draw people's attention uh, to this article from Carnegie Europe. The headline was UK-EU Security Cooperation after Ukraine. And it says Russia's war on Ukraine has sparked renewed foreign policy cooperation between London and Brussels. The importance of these ties will only increase if Trump returns to the White House. But if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you follow through on this page, um, it says this blog is part of Engage, a project that examines challenges to global governments and EU external action. A consortium of 13 academic institutions and think tanks seek to address the EU's ability to harness all its foreign policy tools and identify ways to strengthen the EU as a global actor. And I suggest that global actor really means global power. Um, but if uh, we go on, um, sorry, if we move on through to, to here, um, we are looking at uh, people involved. And we've got this gentleman, Jam uh, Javier Solana, and we see that he's a former European Union high representative for the, uh, for the common for foreign and security policy. 
and he's a former Secretary General of NATO. So for, for me, at least, I don't think we're getting uh, fresh, independent uh, views. We're having the same old people. But this is another member of the uh, International Advisory Board, Robert Cooper, British diplomat, served as special advisor to the European Commission for Myanmar, British embassy, worked at the foreign office, obviously, but also de uh, uh, deputed to the Bank of England and spent time in the cabinet office as assistant secretary for defence and overseas affairs. Now, of course, we're not suggesting in any way these people are doing anything wrong. What we are saying is it's very difficult uh, to work out who has the power and influence around our politicians, as there are so many non-governmental organisation think tanks and other organisations which are working towards um, global governance. And I missed it on the last slide, but there was a big red arrow and uh, uh, what was that talking about? The Florence School of Transnational Governance. There we are. We can see it now. So uh, many of these people are involved clearly in efforts to remove us from uh, basic control over our own countries and to move us into uh, transnational governance where there will effectively be one world governing body. And that's probably a very a good time to bring in Mark Anderson because, of course, uh, you've been warning and warning about this rise of a one global government for many years. Uh, Mark. Thank you, Brian. Good day, gentlemen. Yeah, a good example of that, of course, is the U.S. southern border. Um, I'll kind of get a cornerstone for my discussion here today by stating that the U.S. will go to any length to intervene uh, globally anywhere. Uh, if it thinks that uh, uh, economic interests are at stake or whatever it might be. It's an interventionist state until we're told otherwise. But when it comes to its own border, the United States is suddenly non-interventionist. That, that is, the federal government will only intervene to keep the border open, not to secure it and defend it. Completely counterintuitive to any notion of national sovereignty. But when you look at the whole picture, it makes total sense. Intervene in other countries' affairs but allow ours to go global at, at the same time. So the whole thing is toward global governance. Anyway, the Take Back Our Border convoy uh, happened this past weekend. Uh, one was pretty close to me. I couldn't quite get there in person, unfortunately. It was in a city called Cuamado, Q-U-E-M-A-D-O, over by Del Rio and Eagle Pass, which is one of the most active areas for illegal entries over the southern border. And it also happened in Yuma, Arizona, and Southern California. So there were three convoys uh, over the weekend, and I was in touch with um, Anson Bills, the organizer of the Texas one, to get most of my information for today's report. I mentioned it last week that this was coming up. Anyway, we have a conceptual video that kind of shows the spirit of the thing. Uh, their website is takeourborderback.com. And I've got a bit of an exclusive after this short video on what's coming up later in the year. But let's watch this video and it kind of expresses the spirit of the event.
That short, dramatic video noted that this started January 29th and it included Febu concluded February 3rd. And uh, this next slide, it just shows a uh, an idea of what it looked like aerially. I couldn't get the best photo for aerial um, uh, right away. It's kind of a short video, TikTok. We're looking at it without sound. Take our border back, rally, Cuamato, Texas, drone footage. And it shows that there was quite a turnout. Anson Bills, my main source, who's a former oil field worker and former U.S. Army, he said that the Texas uh, truck and car convoy was five and a half miles long, and the attendance over the weekend was about 2,000 people. I asked him if there was uh, any um, uh, appearances of uh, uh, um, agent provocateurs, uh, federales that might uh, try and stir up trouble and then try and discredit the whole movement and the rally. He said all that happened was Friday night and Saturday morning this past weekend, some people dressed as white supremacists, if you want to call them that, were there making a lot of racket with a bullhorn and other means trying to create noise and distractions and disrupt the event. But the police were called both times, uh, Friday night and Saturday morning, within about an hour roughly, and the police broke the whole thing up. And so there wasn't any further disturbances, according to Anson. And also, he noted that it appeared, appeared we can't prove it, that those posing as white supremacists may have actually been the far-left agitator group known as Antifa. So they're still looking into that. Now, in this next slide, it shows Anson Bills with the dark cowboy hat on. In the upper left photo, <clears throat> excuse me, he's with U.S. Congressman Keith Self, just like it sounds, S-C-L-F a Republican from Texas's third congressional district. And then on the, the other photo is Anson Bills, the organizer, again in the dark hat, with Sheriff Brad Coe. And he's a, the Kinney County Sheriff in Texas. He's been one of the bravest sheriffs, and he's been credited with really getting Texas Governor Greg Abbott off his arse, and they're the first ones to use that language, to really get involved and get Operation Lone Star going and defend that border. I've reported before here on UK Column several times that people are rather upset. Some people are rather upset with Governor Abbott, thinking that he might be throwing the fight. They want him to get serious, and that was part of the reason for this rally. But I'll mention before we get into some stats briefly that Anson Bills told me that this was a convoy that became a Christian uh, revival meeting. Much of the over over the weekend meeting meetings, oh, excuse me, the, the get-together that is over the weekend was uh, 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 pastors and, and uh, whatnot uh, praying and speaking in biblical terms and uh, praying for our border, praying for our leaders. So it was something of a Christian revival get-together in as much as it was a protest against the lack of border defense, particularly a protest against the Biden administration for doing what globalists do best and that is to let their own borders just completely dissolve. So a very dynamic thing. And I've got a brief announcement I'll make, but first we'll look at some very interesting stats. Here we have the U.S. southern border, uh, fiscal year 2024, which began this past October 1st. We had uh, just so far in this fiscal year, the first uh, couple months of the year and going back about two or three months last year, that's the fiscal year 2024, we had 302,034 um, encounters between border, border Patrol agents and illegals. And that's for October, November, and December, that's 785,422, just the end of last year. Fiscal year 2023, 2.47 million encounters with illegals. Fiscal year 22, 2.37 million. Fiscal year 2021, 1.73 million. We'll move on from there. And what we have, what's also interesting is we don't, we don't know much about the northern border. And we'll mention something here. Nobody talks about the northern border. Fiscal year 2021, the monthly high was almost 5,000. The year total was over 27,000. Fiscal year 2022, the monthly high was uh, 15,260. That's the highest month of the year. The year total, 109,000. In fiscal year 2023, the monthly high, the highest month in that fiscal year was almost 20,000. And that total for that 
fiscal year was 189,402. So the northern border, which is often ignored, Brian, uh, has some rather unsettling numbers, though they're nothing like the southern border. And that's the main thing. Um, I'll, I'll conclude by noting that according to my research and those that have been involved in these convoys and others, it's not just the image on the left, the migration and 2030 agenda of the uh, Office on Migration of the UN that's behind this, but partly it's also a UN document published in the year 2000, Replacement Migration, Is It a Solution to Declining and Aging Populations? Literally redistributing people because of dwindling populations. So there's lots of dynamics at work, Brian, but that's that's the main thing. A quick announcement is that in April, they plan on having more meetings and smaller kind of convoys to keep the momentum going here in Texas, mainly. Mark, thank you very much for that. And um, what an incredible state of affairs that the American military mo- um, um, uh, the, sorry, the American military is uh, prepared on a vast scale to operate overseas at the moment, and uh, of course is bombing heavily in in uh, in Yemen. Uh, but the U.S. apparently cannot defend its own borders, so we have this conundrum between the aggressive action of America overseas, but apparently when it comes to home defense, uh, this can't be done. And to me, this says, of course, that actually this is internal policy, uh, which is designed to confuse the uh, the U.S. public in a way that migration problems here in UK can confuse the UK public. So uh, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with um, a lack of common sense or are we dealing with a globalist policy to promote that migration in order to break down the nation state? And I believe it is is that latter. Um, Alex, we're having a fun day today with the news. So welcome back. And uh, I think you, you've you've got some interesting news from Europe to uh, impart. Indeed, and just a closing thought on what you just mentioned there, Brian. The the, the most poignant or uh, bathos laden of those uh, incidents that you of the kind you referred to is that the Arizona National Guard had a not insignificant number of troops injured on the Jordan Syria border recently in that kerfuffle around Al Tanf military base. Uh, at the same time as Arizona is being invaded in the way that Mark covered. Well, here, and I apologize if people are listening in audio only, that you'll only hear some pounding music. Uh, It's not original audio soundtrack, but you'll see some footage now uh, of uh, what happens uh, last Friday when farming protests reached the gates of the European Union. You'll see that they were, at least on Friday when this footage was taken, the 2nd of February, they were being given the kid gloves treatment by the Belgian police, perhaps because someone was lent on. So this is footage from last Friday. So an exchange of chockies from the police to the farmers for flowers from the farmers to the police. Uh, This, of course, is regarding the uh, green agenda more generally, the Green Deal and its various spin-offs at the European Union. What you saw there was on the edge of uh, territory which enjoys diplomatic immunity, but even that uh, area of the EU's territory outside the European Parliament and other institutions is, of course, the the, the, uh, obligation of the Belgian Federal Police to protect These protests have spread, but the curious thing is there's not that much coverage of it, even in the reliable alternative media. uh, We know that they've reached Lithuania, Greece, uh, right down to the tip of Italy. 
Uh, and so there's a general malaise now, which is uh, spinning out from Benelux, France, Germany, where the farmers have, have been hit hardest with regulation, right through to the southern uh, and eastern periphery, where you'd think that the more agrarian economies there are more farmer friendly. Now, I'm usually in Brussels uh, midweek, never at a weekend. So I cannot attest to what happened over the weekend. But a troll of the sources this morning suggests that very little else has gone wrong since Friday the 2nd. What happened there, uh, actually, sorry, this is from Thursday, uh, the, the 1st of February, uh, is Nieuwe Oaks, the uh, Dutch farmer's journal, reports that the mood was turning uglier on Luxembourg Square, which is as close as you can get on public or uh, Belgian land to the European Parliament buildings, uh, because some were trying to storm the barricades. And uh, it seems that one of the victims of this was uh, the, the statue of the British-Belgian 19th century industrialist John Cockerill, whose statue was toppled in the middle of Place du Luxembourg, not because he's a particular villain in their eyes, but simply out of uh, uh, annoyance. And this is all at the edge of, um, on the margins of a, of a large European Union summit that's taking place, because at the end of the five-year period of both the European Parliament and the European Commission, which both end this summer, uh, and then there's elections, um, the question is uh, how much agenda will be rammed through. So the farmers seem to think that before things get busy with planting in mid-March, now is the time to be out night and day. And um, I just stress that as with the reports of empty shelves from Paris and Brussels, both of which cities I was in last week, there's very little of that to see on the ground. And in fact, going to the railway station in Brussels to get to Paris last week, I did see the flashing yellow lights of tractors massing to go to Luxembourg Square, being escorted co uh, courteously by police. But there was very little of the argy-bargy that you read about. So if you see footage of live from Brussels riots or live from Paris uh, empty shelves, don't necessarily believe it. And I'll do what I can to redress the balance in reporting, although I'm just one individual. Now, what's happening in the Netherlands, uh, somewhat Concerningly, the mayor of Amsterdam, Mrs. Halsemar, Filmke Halsemar, who's from a radical left-wing party, which was an amalgamation of communist parties originally, uh, although she is not really a, a communist by background, is reporting to the world now, this is from The Guardian at the start of the year, uh, that she's so concerned about the Netherlands becoming a narco-state because the, the mafia controlling the real estate and the lawyers to sink in the profits of their, of their drugs trafficking, and of course, they tend to use Dutch airports and, and uh, um, uh, marine ports to land uh, South American cocaine for distribution. She's so concerned about that that she thinks that the solution is regulation and decriminalization. Dutch Customs reports that cocaine seizures have gone up to 60 tons nearly, mostly in Rotterdam. I visit the areas affected often and I speak with the uh, customs officials. It's a cat and mouse game that they can hardly keep up with. They're managing down in Belgium where they also have major ports, notably Antwerp, it's nearly twice as much that's being seized. Even smaller ports like Flissingen, sometimes known as Flushing in English, which gave its name to the borough of, uh, or the, the, the district of New York, uh, are similarly affected. The trouble is, though, that Mrs. Halsemer has gone on to do this, speaking to the Dutch uh, financial title, Financiële Dagblad, which is really just a, a quality general paper now. She says that the, the whole idea of a war on drugs is, quote, perverse and counterproductive. So she suggests, although that she wants safeguards, she says, for children not to get anywhere near cocaine, that cocaine should be a regulated market because she says, basically here, face it, the war on drugs failed. People want their jollies. You're not going to stop them. I speak to a lot of Dutch urban policemen and police chiefs sometimes, and they say the same thing. But it's all about culture because down in Workaday, Rotterdam, uh, the Moroccan origin mayor, who's uh, from a very strict Islamic background, actually, uh, has been a stickler for law and order. And he is repulsed by the idea, even though it's his city, where, which is the port where most of this cocaine is landed. Likewise, in Antwerp, the Flemish nationalist mayor, uh, Bart de Wever, says he absolutely doesn't want any uh, regulatory change. So, you know, the, the consequence could be, of course, that cities like Amsterdam, with the global uh, mayor agenda and the and the, the parliament of mayors, uh, could actually decide that they want to form what Mrs. Halsamart was already calling a coalition of the willing and declare in their own right that certain cities are sanctuaries for anyone who wants to have a shot of uh, whatever takes their fancy or a snort of cocaine with all the misery that that will uh, result in. The rare foundation... Uh, run by, by Amy Meck, not everyone's favourite, I know, because it tends to believe in a clash of civilizations ideas, but it does report, and it's subtitled the, 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 the report in English for people who want to look at it, that the new Slovak Prime Minister, Robert Fico, has reported, has, has announced a parliament, something which has never been seen before in an EU member state or a Western country at all, which is he wants a permanent government secretariat, 
trying to bring to light the abuses that happened under COVID and on screen at the moment is, although he was mainly trying to bash the opposition for when they governed Slovakia and allowing through dodgy deals with with COVID equipment, uh, where he alleges backhanders uh, and, and, and failed deals were the order of the day. What's on screen at the moment, he is actually talking about the vaccine damage as well and uh, that cardiovascular causes. So a head of government in a European Union member state has actually said that he's going to institutionalise the inquiry into that now. Uh, we reported previously on C.J. Hopkins, an American comedian who was prosecuted in Berlin for allegedly trivialising the Holocaust by uh, means of this book cover that he brought out the, about the New Normal Reich. And we reported at the time that the judge scuttled out of court wearing an FFP2 pig snout-like mask because she was so concerned about publicity because uh, it was such a ridiculous uh, trial. Uh, Hopkins is now going to have his uh, acquittal appealed by the German prosecutor, whom during the first trial he reported looked like he was high on speed. He's pulling no punches. He says here that the judge really just had to acquit him because his argument was, you are totalitarians, and if she'd gone ahead and convicted him, it would have uh, uh, clinched the argument, which is probably why in her summing up, she says you're a nasty totalitarian yourself, and my acquitting you here shows that Germany is not totalitarian. Well, the prosecutor wants another bite of the cherry. He correctly says, Mr. Hopkins, that cases like this are not meant to go to trial. He draws um, uh, parallels with his native US, where uh, plea bargains are often cut by aggressive DAs in the hope that people will just be intimidated and not and not face the trial. But Hopkins is standing his ground. He says in a tweet that um, he only got acquitted because he's an American. He had enough money to pay a good lawyer. And because he's an American as well, he was able to get international mainstream media coverage. Many German dissidents, of whom there are legion, he says, cannot do that. I think he's right. What else is Germany doing in the tyranny stakes? Well, the former head of the German equivalent of the FBI or MI5, in fact, the immediately passed uh, member, uh, head of that, that agency, the BFV, has now been told he is under surveillance <clears throat> by his own old people his own agency. And this is just too long to do, do any justice to. You must read this by Eugippius uh, because he's shown a lot of detail. What's gone on is that Marson has managed via his lawyers to flush out the document they've got. Uh, he demanded it under freedom of information legislation, um, describing uh, something more like a subject access request in British terms, all of the stuff they had justifying their surveillance of him. And in a nutshell, you might remember that there was this Reichsbürger movement, uh, you know, sovereign citizens equivalent who got raided a couple of years ago, deeply penetrated by the BFE agency themselves. And all that the BFE were able to do on Mr. Marson, their old boss, was to note down every time that one of these Reichsburgers said, Mr. Marson's a jolly good chap. Uh, and, you know, there, there was a su supposed coup attempt under this Prince Heinrich the Thirteenth, but Marson never replied to the letter. He knew it was instigation, never got anywhere. But really, all his comments about, I don't like the Greens uh, on screen right now, for example, in the original German, is they're quoting back to him as a reason why he should be uh, surveilled. You once said the Greens are dangerous and they remind you of the Khmer Rouge and the Chinese Cultural Revolution, how naughty of you. But even things like there's no difference between the political parties, he, he, he made such a statement to the press once, that justified putting him on, on under surveillance, it's really too laughable and I could go on, but time is too short. So that's the level that Germany has got to now. Its own spy boss is under surveillance for not going with the full agenda. Meanwhile, the supposedly politically neutral president of Germany, as distinct from the chancellor, um, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, has given a speech in which here at the bottom of this paragraph, he says that um, the uh, incident in Potsdam I reported last time, the alleged um, uh, coup plot with the bugging of a clock, we now know, by the way, that that seems to have come directly from the journalist collective. They were given a tip off by that same agency, BFE, to go and bug the clock. Um, but now, as a result of that, the, the, the January 6th-like scandal has hit. And so this gives the president the, uh, the clout to say what was just on screen there. We cannot allow our democracy to capitulate and uh, we must stop these rat catchers. That is direct Third Reich-like language. So if I was in Germany, I might be the next one on trial for trivializing the Holocaust for making that comparison. Uh, to close off this segment, uh, a couple of things from non-German uh, uh, tyranny. One is Austria. Epimetheus reports that Austria's constitutional court has, quote, devilishly, in his view, ruled that death is a human right. The question here, I'm just putting up the headings of his piece, is the constitutional court, just like France last week, 
uh, is saying, um, you know, uh, we, we actually have a better understanding of the law than the, the parliament itself. So we are now breaking the, the power of the law that stops people assisting suicides in Austria because it interferes with self-determination. Yes, you heard that right. Self-determination now means that you have to have a third party allowing you to kill yourself. So, it, you know, self means nothing there. As he points out, this will be used, the court ruling will be used to force Christian care homes to provide assisted suicide. And so he goes on to say that this will end religious freedom. And in a purple passage at the end, he says that the state will continue its assaults on Christians, the world's most persecuted religious group. This is unsavory and evil. The constitutional court of what's supposed to be one of the world's best democracies is enabling in eschatological terms the forces of death to gain the upper hand over the living. This is wrong on so many levels, it boggles the mind. You don't even have to be religious to see clearly where this will lead to evil. And we'll close this segment out with some uh, coverage of uh, some footage from Stockholm of people who've decided that the Swedish uh, state-funded media, funded by an obligatory tax, as in Germany, uh, are not doing the things they should, that they are allowing sexualization and quite a good turnout in Sweden. So whether it's farmers or people disenchanted with the legacy media, I don't think Europe is going to see an absence uh, or a shortage of protests in the next few weeks. Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, serious stuff across the board from cocaine to euthanasia uh, with challenge the Green Party or say that all the politicians are similar and you're going to have uh, the intelligence services tracking you. If uh, that's happening in Germany, it's not far away in this country unless we stop it. If people like uh, what the UK column is doing, then please come and join us. It's due to the generosity of the people who've taken out memberships with UK Column that we can continue to finance and do what we're doing. So a huge thank you to uh, people who are signed up members. Uh, but you can also help us, of course, by purchasing through the shop with a piece of clothing or perhaps you'd uh, consider a membership gift voucher, which is always a good way of bringing in uh, other new members. And uh, we do produce this material to be spread far and wide. And uh, we're very grateful for everybody who's helping us do that. Remember to give the UK column a shout. Now, for extra time for our members today, we're delighted to say that we'll be joined by Rachel Matthews, who will be telling us, telling us about her initiative uh, with Colchester Council Watch. This is part of holding local accounts, local councils to account. And this is a very, very encouraging initiative uh, which has popped up in Colchester, but we're seeing signs of it in other local authorities around the country. So um, this will be a very interesting discussion with Rachel in extra time. Please join us if you can. Also, I'd like to say that tomorrow an interview goes out that I did with uh, Jackie Devoy. Jackie talking on the very serious subject of democide, but the killing off essentially of elderly and vulnerable people, uh, which is happening without any doubt in the UK, um, usually uh, hidden or semi-hidden under the so-called care pathways. Um, but uh, join us for that. Uh, that's an audio interview at one o'clock tomorrow. Um, we've also uh, got this um, interview now, which has gone up, which is the latest update from James Rogowski. Um, please have a listen to this uh, as he talks about at least some problems with the World Health Organization's attempt to take control of uh, health and vaccine policies in uh, nation states. I'd also like to say we had a very interesting uh, email uh, came in to us, which is talking about a, a meeting in Cardiff. Uh, this is really excellent. This is another group of people who are saying, let's get people in political parties, the candidates together, and talk about uh, what we need to do 
for the right policies and what policies we need to challenge, and that includes the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization agenda. Um, that's uh, uh, detailed here in these two uh, leaflets. So um, it's Monday the 19th of February at 6.30 p.m., 7 p.m. start. And if you look down the bottom of the yellow flyer, uh, you can see the contact details with an email address, sgcardiff at hotmail.co.uk and also a telephone number. So you can freeze the screen to check out those details, but great to see these initiatives going. Uh, Freedom Forum of Britain parties and candidates meeting. Uh, also had this very interesting email, which uh, was from a lady who said that she talked to a friend uh, and in the conversation, that other lady said that her daughter, who teaches in what is presumed to be a junior school, has been told that she is not to teach the children how to use cash anymore. And uh, uh, Margaret said that the uh, lady was livid, uh, livid at having this imposed on her by the school. Um, but what we wonder is, is this happening in other schools? So anybody out there who's got any knowledge of this, we would be interested um, in hearing from you. Uh, we've also uh, got this one. Um, I don't know whether you can help me out here, Alex, on this uh, particular uh, video. Gladly, yes. Uh, we have covered John Waters in many of his legal fights, including that which he headed up with Gemma O'Doherty, uh, challenging in the Irish High Court uh, some of the COVID tyranny and flushing out how little of the Constitution was left, similar to the French and Austrian uh, cases just covered. Well, if you go to Gemma O'Doherty's video page, the link will be in the show notes, gemmaodoherty.com slash video, you have to scroll down her playlist inside the video pane to find this item from the 30th of January. The video interview is entitled John Waters on a national and a new anthem of humiliation for the nation. That was the first segment of this interview. But if you zip to one hour 18 onwards, you will hear John Waters promising, and I'm sure he's right, to give the establishment yet again the fight of his life because he's now being taken to court very uh, tardily uh, over supposed libel in a way that mirrors what's happened to Richard D. Hall and others uh, because he correctly, in my view, uh, said that the uh, reporting of the poor Indian lady who died because she wasn't allowed an abortion in backwards Ireland some years ago, that that story was uh, flubbed from beginning to end, and that actually the woman died because of medical incompetence, and that this is widely known. Well, the establishment has put one of the injured parties allegedly up uh, to literally on the last day before the deadline, you know, one year minus one day that the case was launched, is now coming to trial. And John Waters is going to give uh, his best to flush out just how rotten the Irish establishment media are on this, which, of course, was the uh, pillar that was used to to bring in uh, Irish abortion laws. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Well, I'm going to move on to a, a segment here talking about the relationship between the UK and Israel. And what comes into my mind is something that I've used before, which is that if I look out uh, into the eyes of our audience and I say, would the audience prefer me to be honest about uh, what's really happening and what we think needs to be reported, or would they like me to be diplomatic? I think the answer is we should be honest. And I think we need to really uh, start to ask some serious questions, even though many people can find these uncomfortable. And the subject is the relationship of Israel with the UK. So let's have a look at a little bit of material here and uh, just get an impression of why, why we are flagging up this relationship. So this is um, going back to October 2023. It was The Guardian with the headline, Sunak pro promises Israel unqualified support in face of evil, but makes no mention of Gaza plight. And there was a little subheading underneath the photograph which said, Rishi Sunak's support for Israel, not just today, not just tomorrow, but always. So unqualified support for always. And uh, again, Alex, I'm going to ask you for a little bit of help here. But if you promise unqualified support, always for to the end of time effectively uh, what commitment does that make from the uk to israel in your opinion there's a single word for that at law suzerainty which is no longer being above the law but being under the law 
uh, of another country. Uh, it's also called being a vassal state. You're pledging that that country's interest will outrank your own when there's a choice of men or material, uh, blood and tears, basically, that you will supply that to Israel come what may, even if you need it at home. Well, Alex, thank you for that. Uh, I asked the question on the news. Uh, you weren't primed on that at all. Um, but uh, let's think about uh, what Alex's reply really means and look at some more excuse me, some more material. We're going back to 2011. This is uh, an article on the UK column website, Britain or Israel. And what we're pointing out is that no person, particularly if you're, uh, if you're a reader of the Bible, no person can have two masters because they will love one and hate the other. And uh, so we asked that question of uh, David Cameron as he was also talking about his uh, extreme loyalty to Israel. Let's have a look at a little video clip. This is actually from 2014. So let's look at what a younger David Cameron was having to say at that time. You asked the question, you know, what have I done today to try and encourage a two-state solution and a successful conclusion of the peace process? Um, you asked, should I do more to warn of the risks? I come here as a strong friend of Israel, but also as someone who really wants to try and help paint a picture of what this country and this region could look like if a two-state solution went ahead. And I think sometimes we get lost in the process and who's up and who's down and who's given this concession or that concession. And sometimes we can fail to get our eyes fixed firmly on the prize of what this is all about a secure Israel safe inside her borders, her people safe, and a state of Palestine alongside as a good neighbor with all of the liberation economically and in terms of security that would bring. That was what I wanted to do today, and that's what my um, speech was all about. So my question to the audience is when we hear that clip, and we've, we've now got the UK bombing Yemen is that a result of UK policy or is it the result of Israeli policy? And I'm going to suggest to our audience that in 2024, we have no, now got no way of knowing. And this is a very serious position. But back in March uh, 2014, the UK column was also warning of uh, conservative um, Minister Francis Maud, who'd set up a web of uh, involvement with uh, Israeli organizations, which included universities. It actually included the police. It included um, Israeli uh, um, Force 8200. So we're into the intelligence services and uh, links through to GCHQ. Um, we had links with the Israeli government and uh, its agencies and its education systems and its security systems at all levels never discussed in uh, Parliament, and uh, we are now uh, left with this residue. So if we come on to uh, more uh, present time, this is 2021, so we're advancing seven years. We've now got the Memorandum of Understanding between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Israel and the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office on the UK-Israel Strategic Partnership. How many people in the uh, UK public are even aware that this has happened. And I'm just going to flag up, we have mentioned this before, but I think it's important to flag it up again. In the list of topics, we have diplomacy, and it says the consultations will focus on bilateral relations, regional security, counterterrorism, proliferation, global issues, and increased cooperation in the multilateral arena. And for defense and security, it says cognizant of the importance of joint, opera joint cooperation in the fields of defense and security as part of the UK-Israel partnership. The UK and Israel will continue their direct and professional bilateral development of the strong defense and security relationship within the existing frameworks between the sides. So we come back to the question that when we see events unfolding in the Middle East, are these the result of independent, sovereign UK uh, policy, or are these the results of influence and control from Israel over the national government of the United Kingdom? We have no way of knowing, 
And we will not know until enough people start asking the right questions to lift the lid on this relationship. Um, but uh, sorry, just pop you back to Rishi Sunak again here. This is Jewish Telegraphic Agency uh, with the question, where does Rishi Sunak, new UK prime minister, stand on Israel and Jewish issues? And of course, there was a glowing statement by Rishi Sunak here. Uh, where he says that the apartheid claim of uh, Israel is not only factually incorrect, but quite frankly offensive. Like any nation, Israel is not perfect, but it has a vibrant multi-ethnic democracy with a free press and the rule of law. It stands as a shining beacon of hope in a region of autocracies and religious extremists. Do we believe that statement from Rishi Sunak? Well, many people clearly don't. And what is interesting is many of those people are actually uh, Jewish, members of the Jewish community themselves. There's a recent London protest uh, where, where we can see some of the signs here one of which says that the state of Israel does not represent world Jewry. Uh, are these uh, opinions reported in UK? No, they're being uh, censored, apologies. And uh, this protest here of a similar vein is in the United States where uh, the Jews protesting, uh, one of the banners says Israel is responsible for 75 years of tragic bloodshed of Arab and Jews. So it appears to me there are many questions to be asked of the UK's relationship with Israel. And uh, I would personally like to see uh, the major media outlets uh, interviewing and questioning members of the uh, Jewish community themselves to get their opinion. Alex, we're very short of time, but if you've got any comment on uh, my little analysis there, uh, I would be interested. The shocker for me was the wording of that memorandum of understanding. Of course, MOUs are a recent development to obviate the need for treaties, as Mark has often reported in the past. Um, that text doesn't seem to me to have been proofread, let alone written, not even proofread by the Foreign Office or the Cabinet Office. Uh, look at the Hebraism at the end there, between the sides, which you also find in Russian English, uh, instead of between the parties, and the tautology uh, joint cooperation. That would have been fished out immediately if that document had been through Whitehall. I think it went straight from Tel Aviv or Jerusalem uh, to the press. So that, that, and then to gov.uk rather, and then to the press from there. That says something about who's wagging the dog there, doesn't it? Uh, well, the rapper Low Key, uh, a British rapper of Iraqi heritage, uh, who's very careful with his sources, so I'm happy to report his tweet rather than any other source on this. He reports that Douglas Murray, one of the uh, supposedly conservative cheerleaders for Israel at the moment, was scheduled to hold a, hold a host a fundraiser for Israeli soldiers in London recently. But the event was cancelled because of, shall we say, boomerang effect cancellation. Uh, of course, it tends to be the younger and left wing people who go for cancellation, particularly this kind that was that Dominic Campbell fell victim to in Ullapool, where the, the, the right on staff said, I'm not serving you, you're Mr. Brexit. Um, but it can backfire as well, because Douglas Murray uh, was going to go to this fundraiser, but the staff at the uh, unnamed venue said they wouldn't even do it for triple pay. Uh, that's quite something. Loki goes on in a, in a subsequent tweet to point out that Murray worked for many years as a director of the Henry Jackson Society, well known to us from previous reporting, and that the executive director, Alan Mendoza, known to me at Cambridge, presides also over the British branch of the largest settlement building organization in Palestine, the JNF, where Netanyahu is a patron. So this is getting quite uh, networky, isn't it? Now, Mr. Loki. Uh, has done a lot of uh, interviews as well. I haven't got it in the show uh, a slide, but in the show notes, you can follow uh, an, uh, an interview he gave to TRT World, the Turkish channel, uh, in which he went into some detail, actually. I think that we do have that, but it's in, in, a in the next slide's time. So park that thought for a moment. First, we'll see this. Israel National News Channel 7, Arut Sheva, reports that actually something unexpected happened, another backfiring, really. The Biden administration, this only went through the White House, through the executive, not through Congress, decided to sanction certain Israeli West Bank settlers uh, who were alleged to have done nasty things to local Arabs. Uh, one of the four who was sanctioned, Yinon Levi, was notified by his Israeli bank, Bandle Umi, that his bank accounts have been frozen. So Israel is doing internal Israeli freezes because the White House told them to. It's not a simple question. Uh, of uh, Israel telling Britain and America what to do. It seems to be rather more nefarious and layered than that. And uh, a, a member of the Knesset, we heard, we heard Cameron addressing the Knesset in 2014 a moment ago, uh, Mr. Sukkot, 
who used to be the executive chair of the Jewish Jewish Power Party, the clues in the name, uh, has stood up for this Mr. Levy and said, of course, from his point of view, this settler is the salt of the earth. And he can't quite understand it. Even the, the radical settler wing of Israeli society cannot understand why Israeli banks are going for sanctions uber alas, even domestically, uh, when the issue has to reach them via an American edict. It is, and he's quite right, although I dislike the the, the people involved, uh, he's quite right to say that this is illegal. There's no basis for it in Israeli law. Uh, so, And of course, the West Bank is not Israel de jure anyway. So uh, a complicated mesh where it seems that the banks just follow their own logic. But then finally, back to Mr. Lowkey. Here in the middle of this interview, uh, entitled British rapper and activist Loki unravels the UK's Israel lobby, uh, he points out the particular case of Lucy Fraser, who's now the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, that before she got any political jobs in Britain in the 1990s, she actually had an internship in an Israeli ministry after graduating. That's how ridiculous it's got. Also in the show notes, we'll have a couple more um, videos very recently produced by Declassified UK on the Israel-UK lobby, particularly on how they get into the Conservative Party, a long-term focus of yours, Brian. Uh, Look particularly for the interview with Peter Oborn, because he is, again, one of the few Christian Conservatives who will join mostly younger, far more radical left-wing people in pointing out how unsavoury this is. Uh, Alex, thank you very much. And I absolutely take your point that we we need to explore the relationship very carefully if we're to understand the intricacies and sensitivities of it. But clearly that needs to be done. Um, Now, I'm going to say that we've overrun for time due to our um, technical problems at the start of the programme. So we will end the uh, news now. And uh, particularly as we've got a guest waiting to join us for extra. So I'm going to say a very big thank you to our audience for joining us wherever you are in the world today. And a huge thank you to all those who are supporting the UK column with memberships, because it's your support uh, that is keeping all of our work going. So a very big thank you to you. Thank you to Mark and Alex. And I look forward to seeing you in extra time in a few moments. Thank you. Bye bye.